FIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Ann Chiapetta. Welcome to The Art Parlor, brought to you by ACB Radio and Friends in Art. My name is Anne Chapetta, and I'd like to introduce our Friends in Art members, Lynn Heddle, our president, and Jason Castingway, our host for this evening, and the man with the magic fingers on our digital, <laughs> our digital processing. And our guest tonight is Linda McKinney-Lambert, artist and poet. Welcome, Linda. Hi, Anne. Thank you. Nice to be with you all tonight. Great to have you with us. Absolutely. So, Linda, I would like you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your bio, who you are, things like that. You know, some information about how you began as an artist. And then Mm -hmm. we will be able to ask you some questions and just move along and have a good time. How's that sound? That sounds wonderful. Good. Well, I am an interdisciplinary person, former college professor, and I've always had interests across disciplines. So my entire background is interdisciplinary. I guess I would start to tell you maybe beginning when I first started to make art. And I really had to search my memory for that. I began in 1976. I established my River Road studio in the village of Wurttemberg, where I live in western Pennsylvania at that time. I, in a way, came into art through the back door, in a sense. I met someone who was a local artist. Uh, We were working together on a project at our church. And she was at my house one day for a planning meeting. And she was looking around at objects in my house. And she was looking at ceramics that I had made. And she asked who made these things. And I told her it was me. And she said, I've never seen anybody work like this. She said, you're an artist. That word was unknown to me at the time. And I really didn't know what she meant. So uh, my life was very full. I had five children and a husband. We had three daughters and then we adopted a little boy from Vietnam and a little girl from Korea. So our house was full and busy, as you can imagine. Oh my. And that's why I was involved in the church children's program. Uh, And that's how I met a woman named Donna, who was an artist. So I didn't have time to really do a lot of things outside the home, but I was very active in a nonprofit organization in the community with other mothers. And so my life changed drastically after I met Donna because she told me that she had art classes at her house on Mondays and that I could come and take some classes. And she said, because you're my friend, I don't even want to charge you. I just want you to come and take a painting class with me. So I found out that she had classes on Monday afternoons and Monday evenings. Well, I 
I got everything that she had written down for me to go and buy that I would need for the class. And I showed up the next Monday at her house in the afternoon and I was introduced to painting. I really knew nothing about painting at that time. And somehow I became hooked with that first class because I came home at the end of the class. I hurried and made dinner for my family and fed them. And then I left and went and did the night class too. So that was how I started back in 1976. Thank you. Now, how does your visual impairment intersect with your art and your creativity? When when did you become visually impaired and maybe how did that affect your work as an artist? Uh, Becoming visually impaired happened long, long after this. Like I said, I started in... 1976. And by 79, I was very actively exhibiting my art. And by 1980, I had my first two solo exhibitions. And by 82, I was showing my work across uh, in New York and other cities uh, across the United States. And then from there, it went on to international shows. By 91, I was doing international shows. So I didn't lose my sight until 2007. So I had a good long time before I lost my sight. I started out painting and went on and did my BFA and MFA in painting, but I was also doing printmaking and tapestry weaving too, even though I was working on degrees in painting. So you were, was three different types of, you know, visual arts. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. But how would you describe your art? Well, as with everything, we change over the years. I mean, creative people are always changing. So initially I started out doing still lifes and then I moved from there into landscapes. So whenever I was interested in something, I would just read and look at everything imaginable that had to do with that. So I was, you know, I knew all about the the landscape painters during those years that I was doing landscape painting. And then, you know, I would always have art books. And when I'd go to bed at night, I'd sit there and look at pictures of art, you know, just (laughs) absorb all of this and then also be making art all the time. So once I went to the university, then I was introduced to other aspects. I think for all of us, we... We study with different people along the way, and we learn everything we can learn from those people. And each one takes us to a new place. So right before I went to the university, I was doing a lot of architectural paintings. And I was studying with a man who worked in pastels a lot, and he was also a really good painter. And he introduced me to acrylics. And so from that time, that was around 1980, I was working in acrylics and I was doing architectural things. But the way he worked is something that's called painterly realism. So from him, I was learning that. And it's a much looser way of painting. And then once I went to the university, then I went through different steps there. I think one of the things that I encountered there in painting was, you know, I just went into the university doing what I was already doing. And by the time I went to the university, I was already showing my work 
all over the place. It had been in magazines and I was showing in galleries and museums. So he came up to me one day and was questioning me about a painting that I was doing. And then he had a little talk with me in private on, in another room on the other side of the building. And he said that you can go on painting like this forever. He said, I know that you're very successful and you will continue to be very successful and you will do whatever you want to do. But somehow when I look at you, I can't believe this is you. Well, that's not what I wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, he really, uh, he really questioned me about why I was doing what I was doing in paintings. And he gave me a list of artists and he said, I want you to take this list of artists and go to the library and look in the art index. And he said, I know you're very upset with me and I just, I, you can go for the rest of the day. I just want you to go, but I want you to look. And so he gave me this whole list of artists that I had really never looked at. And that was all I needed was that push. So my work, uh, at first I was very frustrated. And so I just was painting everything black, darkness. I just, I just figured I'm going to do everything I would never do. I'm going to break every rule I ever learned. And I'm going to do things totally different. And so instead of going to the art supply store, I went to a home improvement store and I bought gallons of paint, lots of black paint. Instead of using artist brushes, I bought house painting brushes. And mm. that was just the most wonderful thing that happened because he had disturbed me so much that I was willing to risk everything to change. And uh, so I think with, you know, with our writing, it has to be the same way too. We we have to keep changing and not remain the same. And we have to step into troubled waters and do things we've never done before and risk failing at it. But by doing yeah. that, we really grow. So yeah. I, I eventually moved into uh, gestural abstraction and have okay. spent the rest of my life working in gestural abstraction. So let's talk a little bit about that. That's amazing to me. You're what, Resonating with me the most about what you were talking about is that it almost felt like you you had a jailbreak. Yes. <laughs> like uh, your creativity yeah. <laughs> was just like, no, I am going to just rebel and, uh -huh. and get you to a, to another level. That's of, true. Uh, yeah. So that was what struck me the most. And then I want to know, like, when did your poetry and your writing really start to rev up in you creatively? And how did that take off for you? I took a course in poetry, a literature course in poetry at the university when I was working for my BFA. And I probably did that that first year. So poetry was painting to me. It was art. And that's, and I just have had a passion for it since that time. Wow. That would be around 1985. Okay. And I actually... I began writing. I was writing the whole time. I was working on a BFA degree, but I never really put my writing out anywhere for anybody to read or see. I was just always writing. Okay. So I didn't well, actually put anything out until I went on to work on my MFA. And that would have been around, I, I entered there in 19. 89. So okay. that would be when I first started getting my work published. Okay. So your 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 um, visual arts now now that you have a visual impairment, how does that compensate or how does that affect what you do in a physical sense with your with your art? Well, that was a big question I had when I lost my sight. 
I didn't know if I would ever be able to, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to do anything again, really, at, at, at the beginning. Because at first I didn't even know night from day, and it was just pretty much overnight that this happened to me. I happened to be on sabbatical when it happened, which that mm. was fortunate. <laughs> but I guess what happened was that I had a longing to be able to do something, and I think it's that way for all of us. If we get to a place where we can't do something, we go back to what we could do at one time, and we try to begin there. So I did that in two different ways. And it wasn't anything I planned or plotted out. It's just how it happened. The first thing that I retreated back to was my love of knitting. And I had Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it. Okay. And I learned as a child to embroider. In fact, I have a beautiful poem that I wrote. It's called An Afternoon Embroidery Lesson. And it's in my book, Walking by Inner Vision. And in that poem, I go back to what it was like as about an eight-year-old child sitting in my grandmother's kitchen with my mother as she taught me to begin to stitch. Hmm. So that's those memories and that skill is what I went back to after I lost my sight. I wanted to I wanted to finish knitting a sweater that I had started to make for someone. And and I talk in the book about how that went and the process that I went through, but I eventually did finish that sweater. <laughs> it was for charity and I had wanted to donate it. And I eventually was able to do that, but it was not easy. It took a long time. I, yeah, I would recommend anyone to read that. I will uh, keep that this particular book. story. I have read this whole book, and it is just <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. Well, the other aspect that I went back to, and this happened really, it wasn't anything I thought about, but I got a call one day from a dear friend of mine. She was the department chair, and she said... And this is when I'm sitting in a chair for five months wondering what's going to happen to me because I had no idea how to get any kind of help. I didn't even know there was such a thing as rehabilitation. So my friend Linda called me and she said, I just signed up for a pottery class down at the Arts Center. And she said, I want you to sign up for it too. And I'll come and get you and I'll bring you home afterwards. Wow. Well, she lived an hour away from me. So she had to come an hour in this direction to get me. And then we had to drive another hour in a different direction to get to the art center. Mm. So what she was offering me was she was putting in four hours of her day on the road to take me to a class. And my, my immediate response was, Linda, I can't do that. I can't make pottery. And mm. she said, oh, I think you can. Well, I had made pottery in college, and I loved it. I made a lot of pottery, but it had been years and years ago. So anyway, she talked me into it, and <laughs> the rest is history. For the next eight years, I was down there making pottery. And three years after I lost my sight, I had, for the first time since I lost my sight, I had a solo exhibition at a museum. So I, that had been my life before. I'd had many solo exhibitions, and my work was always in galleries and museums. And what so, was, 
That was, was 2011 that? Yeah. that I had my first solo show after sight loss, and it was pottery. <laughs> Linda, did what? you do hand hand pottery or or molding? Which what kind of hand thrown pottery. pottery? Yeah, yeah. Because I've tried a little of that, and it was just um, everything I tried to make on a wheel just fell apart. So I just. Well, I ended up making enormous pots. They're like three feet high and huge. You can't even pick them up. (laughs) Have you still got those? I just blew every... (laughs) I'll tell you, that night when she took me, or that afternoon when she took me, you know, they handed me the clay. And the teacher didn't know that I couldn't see. And I, I kind of got her off to the side a little bit. And I said... I don't see very well, is what I told her, because I was afraid she wouldn't want me in her class. Mm. So mm. I had a chance to sort of say something to her. I said, I, I don't see real well, so sometimes I might have to ask you to explain something again when you're demonstrating. She says, oh, that's fine. So she had no clue that I couldn't see her hands. I couldn't see the clay. Oh. <laughs> when she found out, I thought she'd die. <laughs> So, I mean, I could I could really uh, fool everybody in there, except the person that brought me. She knew. So, I remember picking up that clay, and it was as though my hands were remembering clay. And I wrote a poem that's also in the book called Muddy Hands, and I talk about the healing power of that clay in my hands. And that it gave me possibilities when I didn't think I had a possibility in the world. (laughs) And and so did the knitting and the, and still you're involved in the embroidery, aren't you? I do what is called encrusted beadworking. That's amazing. Yeah. And it is because I never did it before. That's the thing. It wasn't something I went back to. It was something I was wanting to learn how to do when I lost my sight. That's what I was doing on my sabbatical. I was visiting museums to look at medieval uh, beadworking and medieval adornment. And because that's what I wanted to do. But I didn't know how to do it. So I taught myself how to do this after my sight loss. The way that you describe those pieces in your book is just amazing. It's so detailed. Yeah, I try to bring people into my world because when you say art and poetry, a wall goes up. Unless it's a person who's had experience with art and poetry, right away they think elitist, this wouldn't be for me, I'm not interested in this, or this has nothing to do with my life. But it really has everything to do with our life. And so, you know, if I can explain what I'm doing and how it feels and how I did it, I'm bringing them into my world and it makes sense then to them. Yes, art is a form of communication. Mm-hmm. And again, I think you do a wonderful job, you know, with both your your art and your poetry, your words and the objects that you enhance with your creativity. I mean, it just it's amazing to me that how much more you discovered about yourself and your art after right. you lost your vision. I know you're right. You know what? It's like that professor that took me to the other room to tell me. I could keep on doing this forever, but he saw me doing something far different. Mm. And it's the same way. The sight loss made me angry, just as mad as I was at the professor that day. 
And because it made me so angry, I was willing to just do anything, you know, to to survive it, I think. Yeah. To to go back to being who I am. All right. To put it in a context that you can understand right. and cope with and, you know, just make it part of your life instead yes. of, you know, something that you you reject, you accepted. You work through mm-hmm. acceptance through your creativity. I think that's remarkable. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. You're welcome. If you don't mind, I'd like you to talk about your books uh, in any order you want so that the listeners can get your titles and understand what each one is. Okay. Uh, I'm really happy. I'll talk about, well, I'll talk about them in order. There are four, and I'll just briefly touch on the first one. The first one I wrote when I was teaching, and actually it was part of a 10-year project that I did. For my tenure project, I wrote this book, and the book is based on the years of travels that I was doing with students in the summertime. I taught a course called Drawing and Writing in Salzburg, and I took students uh, to Salzburg to live for a month every summer. And while I was there, of course, I'm writing, writing, writing all the time, and I'm sketching in my sketchbook. So this book is a collection of the things I wrote, my reflections, notes that I took. I wrote the book from my journals that I made when I traveled, and it has some sketches in it that I did. So that's called uh, Concerti Psalms for the Pilgrimage, and it's on Amazon. It's actually out of print now, and Amazon still has it available in their used bookstore. Some of them are new, some of them are used, but I see they still offer it. But I'm planning to redo that book. I have additional thoughts that I I want to go back through no, all Oh, a journals. second edition. Yeah, I want to go. Good for you. Uh-huh. I want to do a revised edition. So that's, mm. you know, okay. on the back burner here. Oh, something else for us to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the first book, and that came out in 2002, and it accompanied an exhibition, a traveling exhibition that I put together of my work that I created while I'm away in the summers. So I put together, I called it the Trunk Show, and that went out to galleries and museums around the country for three years. So the book was made to accompany that. So after sight loss, it was a long time before I found out about rehabilitation. And then we have delays in getting help sometimes. Uh, I, I got to go away for four months for personal adjustment to blindness. But it would be actually a year after my sight lost almost before I would get any help with learning to write, use a computer again. So it took me two years before I was able to actually start writing again and had the skills to do it again. Where did you go for your rehabilitation? I went to the Blind and Vision Rehabilitation Services in Pittsburgh. It's in Oakland, in Pittsburgh. Okay. And I was there, I believe, about three and a half months and it was, uh, you know, just a wonderful, I mean, looking back on it, it made me who I am now because uh, it was very hard for me. I probably by the second day I was there, I had 
just a meltdown where I couldn't quit crying because I had left a college classroom where I taught on a very high level and I am sitting in this room and it's sudden and there's a lot of people in there everybody's doing their own thing you know one teacher but everybody's doing different things and I had never been in a classroom like that in my life and the overwhelming thought came to me Linda you are not even in kindergarten you know I knew that I didn't even have the skills of a child in kindergarten and that just I just fell apart and so I had a couple experiences like that it was very hard for me to adjust sometimes but I also had the determination that I was going to learn everything they could teach me I wasn't gonna just settle for anything whatever they could teach there I wanted to learn it so I came out of there knowing that I could do anything except I'm not allowed to drive a car. But other than that, I could uh-huh. I could figure out how to do whatever I needed to do. A resilient heart. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Can we go so, back to your first book for a second? Mm-hmm. The Concerti. Yes. You, you talk so much in your walking with vision about Mozart, and that's just another thread. <laughs> yes. We've got music. We've got every other, you know, all the other arts. We might as well bring that in, too. So how how does that play a part in everything for you? I'm not a musician, but I love music. I studied piano growing up, maybe 10 years or so. And when my children were small, they took piano. And then I would play with them. And, we, you know, we do some pieces together for the concerts and things. But I'm really not a musician. I just love music. I love Mozart. And actually, that's what took me to Austria for the first time. It was the 200th anniversary of Mozart's death, 1991. Oh, yeah. And that was my first time there. So, and it was a a whole year-long celebration. Everywhere you went, everything was Mozart. All the art exhibitions had to do with Mozart, his music, and all the concerts everywhere going on all over Austria, so that was my first time there, and I, I loved it so much, and I decided that I would order my life in such a way that I would be coming back to Austria every summer. I didn't know how that would happen, but that's <laughs> what I wanted. <laughs> that was the resolve I had in me from my month there. So I write about that then in my second book, which is Walking by Inner Vision, Stories and Poems. And I'm so happy to say that's my first book on Bard. I will give you the number for it. It's DBC 11608 for anybody who wants to read it on Bard. But I'm real tickled about that. It's It's on Amazon and it's available on Audible. And there's a different reader for it on Audible than there is on the Bard. The Bard book was recorded at Perkins Library. And uh, it's a different reader. So there are two very different kinds of voices and two very different interpretations of my writing. I would say... Awesome. I love them both. Just a matter of opinion. I I did not like... I listened to the Audible sample. Uh Uh-huh. And I was not really too impressed with the narrator but the one that does it on bard yes is fantastic i have the same feeling the one that does it on bard is more the voice that would be me yes you know i can hear i can hear that 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's also on Kindle and Smashwords. So all, all of the, you know, all of the different places. But it's a collection of 27 essays. And I organized the book to go from January through December. And it's written like I would write in a journal. I'm writing stories. Each chapter is a month. And so each month opens with a poem. And that poem introduces you then to the chapter and to the essays. I don't write fiction at all. I have no interest ever in writing fiction. It's just not my thing. I write poetry and I write personal essays. Um, That's what I do. And that's all I ever plan to do. So I don't have aspirations to do anything other than that. And uh, so that was the second book. Uh, The third one is, it just came out uh, in the summer of 2019, last year. And it's called Star Signs, New and Selected Poems. So in this book, I actually put at the very end of the book, I give the poem that was first published, the first one I ever had published. And I put that at the very end of the book. So in a way, once you get through the book, you've actually arrived at the beginning of my career in writing. Oh, that's, and that's beautiful. Is, is that on Amazon, on Kindle? It is. Yes, yeah. it is. It's not on Kindle. But it is going to, uh, Perkins is doing it this year. I'm so thrilled about that. They're doing it this year. It's probably not going to be available on board till around the end of the year. But they have definitely told me that they're going to do it. How did Perkins get involved in doing your books? Well, this is really interesting. I had no idea how anybody gets a book on board. I really wanted to, but everything I heard just took me in circles. And so I never did figure out how to do it. And so I thought, well, you know, that's just not supposed to do it, I guess, and move on. And I actually sent my book to Perkins Library as a gift. I wanted them, I wanted to know that my book was in their library. And I didn't even know they were recording it until well into the process. Then I got an email saying, uh, they asked me some questions about how to pronounce some words in my book, I think. That was what the initial contact was. And they said that it was being recorded and the process had already started. I had no idea. I was so thrilled. But again, I never knew that it, I just didn't know where it would go from there. And then I guess it was the 1st of January this year, I started getting emails from several people that they were congratulating me that my book was on BARD. So they knew it before I did. (laughs) It was amazing. It was like, this is so delightful the way this happened because it wasn't a plan. It wasn't anything that I did myself. It just, it just developed because I sent the library a gift, I guess, you know, I wanted them to have my book. And and I sent out a lot. I probably sent out, oh, easily 50, maybe more books just because I wanted people to have the book. You know, I wanted to share it with them. And um, I sent it to all kinds of places. Have you ever done a book signing? Actually, I've done a couple. Let's see, maybe three is all I've ever done. And you know, when I was sitting there doing the first one, It was at a church, and I was sitting there with my books, 
and there was other things going on. It wasn't just me. Um, and I was sitting there, and then people were coming up and buying. They were buying a couple of my books at that time. And then I remembered that I always had a vision of myself seated at a table with books in front of me, and I was signing books and handing them to people. Like when I did that, it all came back to me that, yes, this is what I've always seen myself doing. But I hadn't thought about it till I was in the process of doing it. You know, I had, it was just one of those things tucked away in my memory. So I did that, and then I did one, I guess it was probably around November I did one. And it was really neat because one of the professors I worked with at the college, that day at noon, he checked his computer, and he picked up the newspaper at noon that day and opened up the newspaper and saw a featured article that I was going to be at this place with, I think there were seven other authors there. And he came running in the door, and he said before he left his office, he sent a message out to everybody on campus to let them know that I was there and that I had my books there. But he came, so that was really nice, and it was a nice experience. And then, let's see, did I do another one? I was thinking I did three, but that's all I can think of at the moment. I guess I'm probably thinking of last two weeks ago when I did a presentation at the Historical Society. It wasn't actually a book signing. It was me doing a presentation. And I read, I just told them a little bit about my writing. And then I read them uh, two poems from each of the three books. And I chose poems that were kind of short because I didn't know. I've never read anything in public like this since I lost my sight. So it's been 12 years since I've stood on a stage and gave a lecture or anything like that. And I didn't know if I could do it. But I knew if I didn't do it, then I was going to just totally lose in front of everybody. <laughs> uh, I would just... I would just do something else that I would have done in the classroom. So it worked, and I was able to do it. And they recorded it, and I heard it this past week on the radio. It's They're streaming it on a, a local FM oh, station. Wonderful. Yeah. So the yeah. whole thing from beginning to end, from the introduction that they do to introduce me, and then me taking the stage and my talk and my poems – it's all there. I was so excited about that. That's great. And uh, let's see. So that's three books. The fourth one just came out in January. It came out around, I believe, the 10th of January. And it's something I've wanted to do for so long. I always wanted to write a chap book. That's C-H-A-P book. Case someone and, a, and a, could you explain what a chat book is for those it's a who don't? very small collection usually it could be anywhere from you know a dozen poems to like 30 poems or 40 but it's usually usually around like 25 or so poems and it's a collection that's usually built around a theme it's real it's like a work of art it's just small and precious and I have a love for small things. Actually, I wrote a poem called A Letter to the Curator of Small Things. <laughs> and I am the curator of small things. So I, because of the smallness and the preciousness of a chapbook, I really wanted to write one. So I decided that 
I wanted to write four chapbooks, one for each season. So I would start with my favorite season, which is winter. I had a poem that was called First Snow. And I loved that poem. And so I decided my chapbook would be called First Snow. And then that's the opening poem when you open the chapbook. And all the poems in there are kind of wintry themed poems. So. Linda, I got your book a couple of weeks ago, and I got to say, it's just oh, beautiful. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's just, you're right. It's a precious thing. It fits in your hand, and it, I don't know, the energy from it just is wonderful. I, so, oh, good thank for you. you so much. I'm hearing yeah. that from so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. As yeah. people are getting them, they're, you know, they're contacting me, and it's just wonderful. Uh, the other thing about that book that was so special to me. The cover is a picture that I took of my two dogs out in the snow. (laughs) I walk my dogs about every two hours and I love snow. So they each have a coat on. (laughs) I have two dogs. One's a doxy mix. She's wearing her Christmas sweater. And the other (laughs) one is a long-legged like a Jack Russell Terrier, only tall. She looks like a Jack Russell, but she's tall. She's a terrier. And she has brindle spots. And she's wearing a hot pink coat. (laughs) (laughs) And I took the picture. I had the camera around my neck because I'm holding on to the dog. So I can't be messing with the camera. You know, I'll drop it. So I just had it around my neck. So as they're running ahead of me, I'm just snapping pictures with my hand while the other hand's holding them. So all you see is you see the leashes coming out and you see them attached to the dogs and then you see the dogs are plowing through snow and ahead of them you see they're going over a hill into the woods oh wow this beautiful quiet pristine winter scene how would you um get one of these books i think i want more than one actually you can get them by go well on Amazon. If you go to my author's page on Amazon, the the book is there on my author's page. You can also get it through uh, the publisher. The publisher is Finishing Line Press. So it's finishinglinepress.com. And then once you bring up that page, there'll be a search page where you can type in my name. And if you just put Linda Lambert, it'll bring my chapbook up. And your name is spelled with a Y, is that correct? Linda with a Y. L-Y-N-D-A. My middle name is McKinney. It's M C capital K I N N E Y, and my last name is L A M B E R T. So it's Linda McKinney Lambert is the author. So, um, Linda, oh, the book. I'm- this is the other one. One more thing I want to say about this. It's available <laughs> in paperback, and the paper's exquisite. It's just so yes. nice to the touch. It and is. that's another thing about chapbooks is the special paper that's used in them. And the other thing, I've never had this happen before either. This book also, it's in paperback. It's also in hardback. So this is my first ever hardback book. Wow. Oh, is that yeah. exciting? But <laughs> yeah, if, that if is exciting. We would have to scan it if we wanted to read the poems in there, that we would have to be scanning it or something. Yes. Uh, yeah. If you wanted to do something like that, the paperback would be the way to go. You wouldn't yeah. want to get the hardback for that. Yeah. But the paperback, you'd be able to lay it flat and scan it. 
gosh, I'm trying to picture a chapbook in Braille and, and Braille, you know, as much as I love it, it's it's larger. I think it would kind of lose something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Will the books become available electronically as well, the chapbooks? The chapbook, I, no, I don't think so. It's a limited edition. Only 250 copies were made of this. Ah. So that's why they do a um, pre, they do, they take pre-orders and uh, I had, I think, like two months, two and a half months to get the word out on that, let people know how they could pre-order. So yeah. once that's done, then the book goes to the printers and uh, that edition is print is printed 250. Okay. Is that the same for the hardcover? Linda or You know, I don't know about that for sure. I don't know. The the paperback on that's 13.99 plus a shipping fee and the hardback is I believe 23.99 plus shipping. Good to know. I didn't know it was available in a hardcover or I would have ordered that. <laughs> Maybe you know that happened. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. happened toward the end. That did not happen when it was in the pre-sale stage. I know. It happened. Uh, that opportunity was never even mentioned to me. I didn't even know that was a possibility. And then okay. once they had all the pre-sales, that's when they decided to do this. Hmm. Do you well, know, Linda, if you are on Bookshare and your books on Bookshare? I, I've never put anything there. I don't know how. I'm telling you, I don't know how to do things. <laughs> it sort of <laughs> happened by accident. It's okay. <laughs> I don't know how to put my books on Goodreads or Bookshare. It's a learning curve for sure. We're st- uh-huh. I'm still learning about all of it. Uh-huh. You know, and then how much can you really do for, you know, like how much time in the day? I mean, you it. devote yourself. I want to be able to do something well and not yeah. feel so scattered about that's where this I'm and at. That. And yeah, I, I want to spend the day working on a poem. Yes, and know? not worrying about mm-hmm. who's going to do this and who's going to yeah, do that. So, so I, I'm dying to ask you this question. Two, well, two questions, a couple of questions. Well, I'm questions. sitting down. Okay. <laughs> First question is um, coffee or tea, which is your future you coffee? Coffee. Or tea? coffee. I, make, I make 10 <laughs> cups in the morning and then I drink it all day. Okay, so we're going to have to explain the next question a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, um, Tonka or Haiku and why? Oh, Tonka. Oh, my goodness, Tonka. (laughs) Can you tell people what Tonka is? Oh, please, I don't even know that. (laughs) It's T-A-N-K-A for anybody listening that doesn't know. And that is a Japanese form of poetry. It has only five lines. And it's the most difficult thing I've ever encountered in my entire life. I don't think I'll live long enough to ever really (laughs) understand it. But I joined the Tonka Society of America. This is, oh, maybe around 2014, 2015. I had no idea. what I just didn't know anything about Tonka. So I thought, oh, Tonka Society of America. That sounds good. I'll just join there. Oh, my Lord. I tell you, it is so complex, but it's so amazing. And then I've gone from there. I I ended up being in their anthology. I think it was 2016 I was in the anthology. But I've also been in the Tonka Quarterly a number of times. 
and um, that's a publisher. I'm trying to mm -hmm. think of the publisher's What name. besides five lines does qualify? Uh, what, what do you have to do besides write five lines? Well, it's really complicated. <laughs> it has to do with breath and measuring and um, oh my, uh, pacing. And if a person doesn't, so yeah, if a person doesn't really know what Tonka is and hasn't really looked into it or read much about it, they think all they have to do is write five lines. And uh, the first line would have five syllables, the second would have seven, the third would have five, and the last two would have seven. And they stop right there. So they write something that does that. And it's usually something that is really not even a Tonka at all, according mm -hmm. to Tonka Society of America. And, and I have talked to so many editors about this, editors of Tonka, and actually, the same kind of thought is also for haiku. And again, somebody who really hasn't looked beneath the surface or done much reading will think, oh, it's just three, five, and three. Write whatever you want, three, five, and three. But it's very complicated. So whenever I get a Tonka in a publication, I'm like over the moon happy because it's so hard. <laughs> well sort of on the same subject in reading your book you had some poems in there that were abc darian poems and i thought yes. what is that um and acrostics and you have taught me yes. just by being acquainted with you in the short time i have how to do an acrostic and i actually wrote one. Oh, you did I'm you wrote, really a, good one. <laughs> you wrote but, a good one well where did, lynn, where did the ac we're gonna, lynn we're gonna have to get you to recitate it for us we're gonna to, have to get you to mm. yeah to read it Yes. Well, I'll, I'll do that. I just don't have it with me. I'm, <laughs> okay. But she um, she encouraged me, and I wrote it and sent it to uh, Magnets and Letters. So I'm not sure. I think it's going to be in there. Excellent. But what in the world is the ABC Darien? Where did that come from? I don't know. I would have to look that up for sure. It isn't something that I've looked at lately. So I can't tell you the, the data. I think... I'm kind of going out on a limb by saying this, but I think that it originated... Uh, it had to do with teaching the alphabet and teaching reading at one time. So, so. every every line begins with a different letter of the alphabet. Yes, yes, but, in sequence. Those in the acrostic would be a little more doable for people, I would think, if, if they were I just trying so. to experiment think, with. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the acrostic would be a little easier because you, mm -hmm. you, you would picture the word. So it, and it doesn't really have any other fixed rhyme schemes or measures. It's, no. Yeah, because no, some but, of, some of her lines have one word. Right. And the, uh, right. And the ABC Darians, or however you say it, it has more, um, more rules <laughs> yeah. about how to, how to do it. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we're going to have everybody writing tonkas and haiku and all kinds of things. <laughs> Would you explain acrostic? I don't know if we did that yet, right? I can give you an example. Sure. My name's Linda, L-Y-N-D-A. So I want to write an acrostic, and I'm going to call it Linda. So down the left side of the paper, I'm going to make a vertical line starting at the top. L, then down one line, Y, then N-D-A. So those initials of my name define what each line is going to start with. So the first line would be L. I might write 
lyrical bird songs. <laughs> uh, second line would be why. So I'm going to write something that begins with a why and on down. Like you always hear in the morning or something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And unless you, unless you highlight that first letter, make it bold or do something to draw attention to it, most people never, ever pick up on the uh, form that you started with there. Yeah. It's um, unless you say it, an acrostic under mm -hmm. it, you know, in parentheses from the yeah. title, people won't understand. Right. <laughs> they don't, they're like, oh, that's just really nice. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, I have another, I have another question for you, Linda. I'm still sitting down. Chocolate. <laughs> Chocolate. Milk or dark? Both. <laughs> I'll say dark. I'll say dark. Oh, all right. So we know your favorite season is snow, is uh, winter. Yeah. So what's your second favorite season? What do you, what, besides winter? I guess it's spring because that's going to be the next chapbook is spring. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a poem called Good Primavera. <laughs> Oh, yes, I read that poem. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to be the name of the next chapbook, Primavera. Uh, and the poem opens the book. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. That's wow. Yeah. Jason, do you have a question? I am thinking hard. And one of the things you mentioned was um, you said you're not a musician, but you, play, you learned the piano. What prompted that? Well, I guess it's because my mother comes from a family of musicians. So I grew up in a little, I live in the village of Wernerberg. It's a over 200-year-old village here in western Pennsylvania, settled by my ancestors that came here from the Germanic areas. And there's two churches in this area. One is the Wernerberg Methodist and one is the Wernerberg Presbyterian. So my family was associated with generations back associated with the Methodist church and growing up in this church in this little church it's like a picture postcard church with a little steeple and you know just everything you would imagine on a Christmas postcard that's what it looks like yeah. sits in the like in the woods on the edge of the woods and okay my aunt Jean played the piano my grandfather played the coronet my uncle Claire played the tenor sax my cousin Larry played the trumpet, mm -hmm. and my mother sang. So that was growing up in the church. So I was always, singing was always happening in my house, or, you know, at my grandma's house. Aunt Jean would be playing the piano. My mother would be singing. Um, my mother sang in church by herself, plus with somebody else. And so I grew up in a very musical family. So my mother made sure that we had piano lessons. Mm. I was the only one of the four children that actually did it. And I did it for, you know, a number of years. And she and I had a little bit of dance lessons, not a lot, but I was a I am a steelworker's daughter. I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood where almost everybody there was a steelworker or miner or whatever. And um, so art wasn't anything, and, and classical music wasn't anything I knew anything about. So that was my little bit of culture that came through the church and through my mother. And mm -hmm. I only took mm -hmm. dance classes one, like one year because people lived two doors down from us. The husband had died and uh, the mother was a nurse and she was raising her 
two children, three children, and one of them was three years older than me. So, uh, and the and the mother didn't drive, and we lived a couple miles outside of town. So uh, the mother, her name was Ruby. She would have a taxi come and pick up Joyce and me on Saturday morning and take us to dance classes. <laughs> So that was how I got to do that. So even though, you know, we didn't grow up in a culture that um, that you would think I might have come from, my mother still cared about these kinds of things, you know, and, and I just had whatever was there to be had growing up. Did any of your kids become any kind of artists? My one daughter, Heidi, uh, is an artist. She has a studio, lives on a mountaintop in Pennsylvania with her husband. He's a mosaic artist, and she uh, she does encrusted beadworking like I do. Wow. And mm. she does other things as well, drawing and painting. <clears throat> Let's see. My uh, oldest daughter is an accountant, and she doesn't make art. Let's see. And, uh, oh, daughter Ilsa grew up making art. Actually, when she went to college, she was an art major. And then she got married and went to be with her husband before she graduated. So when she finally got back to going to college, she ended up getting her degree in education and then went on to have her master's in library science. But she's very artistic and she's very, very creative. Our son, Bobby, is the a young child that we adopted from Vietnam. He loves art. He loves music. Hmm. He doesn't do either one of those, but he's an author too. He's a counselor and an author. Hmm. And then our daughter, Victoria, is the little girl we got from Korea, and she's always been very artistic. Um, so a little bit yes and a little bit no. <laughs> My husband was an auto body man his whole life, and he worked at welding, and he worked in a welding shop for a number of years before he retired. And so he would get all the scrap steel. After a job was done, there would be all these odd pieces, and uh, he would be able to make sculptures out of those. So our house is filled with still sculptures inside oh, and out. Cool. We have oh, still wow. sculptures outside yeah. all through the yard, through the gardens, and yeah. And my husband and I actually exhibited together. We did a show at Houghton College with his sculptures and my uh, paintings and prints, and, uh, and he's shown in Pittsburgh. Wow. One of your poems in your book is all about stones, and I've mm-hmm. played with stones. I, I played with stones instead of dolls, mm-hmm. Me too. and I've just always loved them. So what, what started... How did that all that come about? I, I've loved stones all my life. And I've always brought stones anywhere I go. When I come home, yep. I've got a stone in my pocket or two. Or <laughs> I've written a number of poems about stones and holding mm-hmm. them in my hand. And, yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I have bowls of them in my house. Oh, I do too. Ah. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> in every room, practically, there's mm-hmm. stones. I mean, I'm sitting here right now and... Uh, on my desk here, there's a little cedar box, and it's full of beautiful stones. And then I have uh, some little stone sculptures here that a friend made, and I have uh, black magnetite on those. So, yeah, I've have got you stones ever, everywhere. Have you ever tried to sculpt with it or, or do anything with those? I've never that? done sculpture. No, never. I think I did two little sculptures once as part of a workshop. That's it. I was I never worked three dimensionally other than with pottery. I'm pretty much a two D person. Wow. Well, this has been 
amazing to hear all of the accomplishments you've made and just the learning and the growth and the expression. I, I just, I love it all. Oh, thank you. I loved being here. It was so nice chatting with you all and talking about things that I really enjoy. So you are still making those small needlework pieces and what do you oh, do yeah. with them? Are you selling them? Or are you exhibiting them? No, I make them for exhibition. Um, Let's see, I think it's been the last four or five years I've had a piece accepted into the Insights Show, which is sponsored each year by, it'll be 30 years this year, for the uh, American Printing House for the Blind. It's an international art exhibition, and it's juried. And so I've had work in there the last five years, and I've won an award every year that I've been in the show. Yeah, and uh, then they, right. and I I never put them for sale. You know, mostly when I put these out, I don't ever put a price on them. I I insure them, but I don't put them for sale. Don't put a price in the catalog. But this time, I decided to go ahead and put a price on the piece, and I sent it off, and somebody bought it. <laughs> but um, uh, that's yay. like never my goal. I don't make them for that, and uh, I make them because I love to make them, and I like people to see them because they really make people happy when they see them they're just exquisite so what i'm working on now is again how this connects with my writing i'm working on a new series it'll take me the next couple of years to do them for the seasons and the first season i'm working on is snow and winter so what <laughs> i envision yeah. is an exhibition where my writings will be beside my uh, mixed media uh, wow. pieces where, oh, would, where yeah. you know you'll see a collection of pieces that were done for winter and then you'll read a poem that would be really maybe neat. the next panel you'll read a poem from my book about winter or something and I want to do a sh I'm going to be I'm, I'm going to be 77 this year so <sighs> I have, Unbelievable. Wild, I have this wild idea that I want to do something really beautiful for my 80th birthday. <laughs> and that's what I have in mind. And I haven't talked to a gallery yet, but that's what I have in mind. But I'm going to wait and see how this year goes. Well, I have no doubts you will get it done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Linda, just, thank you so much for sharing. Well, thank um, you. Yourself and your, and your creativity and and your life with us. I always find it so rewarding to listen to how creativity um, helps us just be who we are. Aha. Uh -huh. And helps us connect with others. My pleasure. Yeah. Do you have any contact information that you could share with people if they want to get in touch with you? Sure. I'm very easy to uh, find on Facebook. If they type in Linda McKinney Lambert, they'll bring up you know, my timeline. I also have a couple of pages there. One is called Walking by Inner Vision. I started that page when I started my my first uh, website. It's called Walking by Inner Vision. So I post uh, on that, I post r my writings and essays and some commentaries. Do you have and a website? I do. It's uh, lindalambert.com. L-Y-N-D-A-L-A-M-B-E-R-T.com. And then from that site, can they uh, get to any other places yes. that you, you are? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage everybody to follow Linda's blog because it's just exquisite. Oh, thank you. Wonderful. Perfect. Mm -hmm. 
Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Radio. It airs beginning every Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. To listen and for a full schedule, go to www.acbradio.org mainstream. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at acbradio.org and please feel free to check out our website www.friendsinart.com Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month.